Hello, everyone. I'm Alicia Swami. I'm here with my co-host, Eric Johnson, Keely Severson. We are exposing mold. Well, today is a team chat, and we went ahead and let all of our um, newsletter followers, uh, we let them know that we're going to talk about the varying levels of mold sick people. So uh, you and I and Keely always talk about this. There's different levels to mold illness. Um, and, and people don't really know or understand where they are on the path, right? So in the beginning of mold and when you started to see this phenomenon happen, people were able to just simply leave and get well. And now we're seeing this pattern where it's not as easy as just leaving. There's so many other factors that are, first of all, making people hypersensitive and keeping them sick. So I just wanted to just open up a discussion about um, what we're seeing currently in the mold community and what's happening with patients. Eric, do you have anything to enlighten us with? Nah. Okay, well, it's obvious that if you look back in the literature, you find examples of people throughout history that have described mold hypersensitivity, even if they didn't know what it was. I mean, they knew they were getting sick in certain buildings certain swampy locations, damp and cold of England. Um, the idea that if you move to a drier climate, you might be able to resolve your symptoms. So there's always been a, a pretty good record of a certain number of people who are describing this, but we need terms to describe problems when they become really noticeable. And hypersensitivity is sort of an arbitrary concept. It's an idea that, okay, now this has moved to a point where it's not something rare or easily ignored anymore. And Dr. John Malott of uh, Canada talked about this. And he said, with the varying degrees of reactivity, how do you put a, a standard for a place, for a um, building to be considered safe when the majority of people don't really seem to have a problem with it. And just a few people do. Do you tear down every building because it's bothering one or two people? You can't really do that, especially when it looks like a lot of this reactivity is induced by viruses, bacteria, secondary infections. So the automatic formula that kind of developed, it's kind of unspoken, but it's the idea that there are people who are hypersensitive, the people will have serious problems with it, debilitating, devastating, life-altering issues. But since we don't know how to assess these people, we can ignore it until it reaches about 20% of the occupants of a building. And I don't think you'll ever find that written down anywhere, but it's sort of become the standard for when a place that's affecting people shifts from your personal problem into, holy crap, we better do something about the building. So hypersensitivity represents a, a concept of people moving from that state of tolerating the exposure previously to becoming such a life-altering, debilitating problem that they can't ignore it anymore, and they've got to make some serious life choices to deal with it. What's interesting to me is um, 
the people who go into <clears throat> helping other mold sensitive people, um, when they themselves are not a hypersensitive person, like they had a different experience. I don't know if I'm describing this correctly, but maybe you'll find a consultant that was able to recover quickly. And so that's their perception of what mold illness is. It's something that you can recover from completely quickly. And then they'll go and sell their protocol, what they did to get well. But then they find that it's not working for a lot of people, but then they won't talk about that hypersensitivity aspect. They'll blame it. They'll blame the patient in some way or the person that they're working with that they didn't follow protocol. They didn't listen to them. They have emotional trauma. Um, how prevalent is that in the mold community? Well, I'd say it uh, runs rampant throughout the entire mold counseling, mold health paradigm, because everybody represents the uh, situation from their own perspective. And years ago, when this was apparently unknown, at least the medical literature didn't reflect it, and doctors didn't seem to know about it, um, the common cure for a mold problem was to put a fan on it, dry it out, bleach it, and paint over. And that worked. In fact, it worked so consistently that that was the standard, and there were no remediators. The profession did not exist, and people in the construction business simply went out and cleaned up flood damage, ripped out all the moldy sheetrock, tore out as much of the uh, moldy insulation as they could, and then dried out the rest and painted over, and it wasn't a problem. And they didn't even use protective gear to do this. No face masks, nothing. It was just people in regular contractor clothes doing their thing with crowbars and hammers, and it didn't seem to be a problem. And then back in the mid-1980s, that began to change. Not only were people saying that cleaning up the mold and putting a fan on it and encapsulating it with paint didn't work anymore, but some of the contractors doing this kind of work were getting sick. So that was the question for me is, if mold has always been around, what changed? So as things got worse, as the paradigm developed and more and more people started having a chronic hypersensitivity following an encounter with certain mold, each of them represented the, their understanding at whatever level that they were familiar with. So if they managed to rip out all the sheetrock and all the insulation and get good results, that's what they recommended to people. And then there were the next level where, ah, that didn't quite do it. We had to tear out the subfloor and we had to rip out the, the joists and some of the, you know, the two by fours had to go because they were covered with mold. And then that didn't work. And finally, they're ripping down houses and rebuilding on the same foundation. And that didn't work because the mold had polluted the uh, soil underneath and there was sufficient mold toxicity just laying mixed in with the soil that even in a perfectly new, supposedly mold-free house, people were still reacting to it. So it kept getting worse and worse. And everybody who tangled with that next higher level, that became their standard for what they would apply to other people. And then there were the extreme hypersensitive people who had to run for their lives, live in metal shed. And from that point on, they would react to their contaminated objects 
They couldn't have their possessions with them. And they would react to other people standing in the store. Somebody could come out of a moldy building, walk up next to a hypersensitive person, and they go, holy crap. And (laughs) this was the minority. So when they tried to express themselves in groups, people would go, well, that's just you. must be your genetics. You need brain retraining. It's your fear response. You're exaggerating, blah, 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 blah. And it got so bad that in the early mold groups back 25 years ago, the hypersensitivity, the extreme hypersensitive types always had to leave because the majority would say, well, if you have this kind of problem, your expectations are unrealistic and they don't apply to everybody else. So you don't even belong here. So even though it may have looked like a mold group, it uh, still reflected the fact that people want to understand everybody from the familiar things that they know, that they've dealt with. And they were unable to apply it to the extreme cases. And that still goes on today because you can see that all the way throughout the mold expert realm, everybody applies their own situation. And if anybody is slightly beyond that level, they're not getting help they need and they're not getting the understanding that they expect. I feel like it would make sense to me to like really focus in on the extreme cases because. If you're sort of at that baseline level, I mean, what happened with Dr. David Strauss? He was an inspector and he walked into Melinda Ballard's house and just walking in her house was enough to permanently affect his health, right? So it's like, maybe we need to be focusing on these extreme cases and learn from them in order to help every single level of a moldy or a person that's gotten mold sick. Well, from from a scientific perspective, you concentrate on the most egregious cases because they're the most interesting. That's where you're going to find the answers. But from a marketing point of view, that's not productive because these mold experts, they can't fix these people. They can't address their problems. So eventually, through sheer pressure of being unable to deal with the situation, those who are interested in that aspect of it get weeded out of the market. And you can see that even in uh, David Strauss's case, Nobody wanted to focus on what he was interested in, the continued presence of trichothecenes, when everybody else said, oh, no, the spores and fragments are gone. You have no excuse for any continued complaints of illness here. And he carried on with that, did that fantastic test where he concentrated all the air and passed it through special filters to catch it and test it and found that, yes, there's still trichothecenes present. and There was so little interest in following up on his research that he was on the extreme end that people don't want to deal with. I hear what you're saying. It seems like a pattern that I noticed with sort of the low level, I'll call them the low level moldies. They really focus in on the homes, right? The buildings. And um, you and I were talking about before we hopped on this conversation about Dr. Amy Myers on the doctor talks, how she was telling her story about how she was finding mold in her rentals and moved into a house and was moldy and then, you know, worked with the mold literate architect and that house went moldy. And I would say this is an aspect of this illness that you and I, who are extremely hypersensitive, understand is 
it's not about focusing on the homes <laughs> and the buildings. It's really about having this idea of what's going on in the environment and knowing that how I feel in this environment is going to attribute to mold issues in the location in a home. Yeah, um, that's where the term hypersensitive really comes into play because it represents a transition from something that you can deal with by addressing your house to moving into a category where now you have to worry about exposures from all kinds of unknown sources. And it's, like I say, it's kind of arbitrary because people can move in and out of hypersensitivity and it can come from various cytokine inducers, such as having a virus. So if you try to ascribe it to a building, to if the problem's in the house and define your problem that way, well, you're going to be very disappointed when it comes to a hypersensitivity that was unleashed by reactivated Epstein-Barr virus or cytomegalovirus or HHV6. And that's why I say that the standards that people really wish they could develop for the ultimate safe building are probably never going to happen because the way mold acts, it can be a source point in one corner of a building that nobody detects. They didn't even know it was there. And a person had the bad luck to get next to it while a nasty flu was going around. Or maybe they got exposed to EBV for the first time. And that combination puts them over the edge. So now they've got a problem that the majority of the people in that very same place are not going to understand or relate to. I think that's why it's so important to talk about the history of CFS, because that really shows um, what hypersensitive, what happens with people when they obtain a virus and then they're being exposed and what happens to them and how they become hypersensitive. That that information is so important because this is what we're what's happening now. You know, it's it's never it's never not been important information, and it's something that we have to look back to. But you can sure see how hypersensitive people in the past got shoved under the rug. Nobody could deal with their problems; they couldn't understand it, so it just got buried. And sometime in the 1980s, this became so prevalent that it was it was too big of a deal to just you know sweep under the carpet anymore. And that's what happened in the original chronic fatigue syndrome outbreak, the original clusters. And the um, initial, in fact, the first two or three clusters of what came to be called chronic fatigue syndrome were a micro microcosm, a perfect case study for how this thing develops. And it appears that the viruses that went through at the time were especially powerful cytokine inducers. So the combination of that with whatever's going on in the buildings with the toxic mold, stachybotrys, that put people over the edge. And you can see in these clusters how those who were aware of the peril, who sensed that the building was bad and got away from the building in time, they dodged the bullet where those who stayed in the area too long didn't get the virus under control. These were the ones that were defined as chronic mystery malady, aka chronic fatigue syndrome. And their their illness persisted, and it's still persisting today. Yeah, didn't die down, didn't go away. For some of these people, their hypersensitivity never, never faded away. And when doctors realized that there was a pattern to this, as in the uh, Quebec City Hospital, um, Dr. Claude Mainville said, well, we better 
test the variables in these settings to find out what's going on. And they discovered it was trichothecene producing molds. This made a difference. The normal molds, the aspergillus, penicillin, cladosporium, the rest of them, those seem to be molds that people could recover from. But it was the fusarium, ketomium, and trichothecene producing stachybotrys that left a dent, left a mark. It could keep people permanently ill for the rest of their lives. And what's really fascinating about the original chronic fatigue syndrome cluster was that lone teacher who fell into the illness and was like right on the verge of being diagnosed. Okay, you're you're one of the mystery illness people. And he went out and sat in his camper, got away from the school, and was the only one out of the group to recover. And they attached enough importance to this that they wrote it down. That means they, they knew this was an important clue. You're right on the edge of succumbing to a chronic form of immune damage. But if at that exact moment in time, you got out, you could dodge the bullet. They knew that, and yet they didn't follow up on it. Man, I mean, that guy really, <laughs> he got really lucky. But I'm thinking, I always think back to like social media and how um, consultants and people and like, you know, we always see Dave Asprey selling all these things. and. It's like all the information for multisig people is like, here's what you can do to help you so you don't have to go. But in your case, it's like if you stay looking back to that guy, I mean, he was able to get out and and miss the hypersensitivity issue that the people who stayed still are dealing with to this day. So it's like a lot of this information is counterproductive that we're seeing online for moldies to help them. Yeah, the thrust of every treatment is you can do this so you don't have to do that. <laughs> it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's a means to evade having to do avoidance. Exactly. People want buy the purifier, buy, buy this binder. You know? <laughs> and who can blame them? Sure, if, if you can uh, get your health back, with a minimal interruption in your life, of course people are going to spring for that. You'd be crazy not to. But the question is, does it work? <laughs> and if you look at enough stories, the results are not encouraging. Yeah. Uh, most of the um, doctors in these DR talks, these mold summits, you find that uh, they got sick and the very things that they are selling didn't work for them. They had to bail out of their moldy house. Yet, when they move elsewhere and recover, what do they do? They go right back to selling the same old crap that didn't work for them. Oh my God. I hate to nag on Dave Asprey. I really do. But we have to for a second because he's the one that's like such a big perpetrator of this where he got really sick. And he even admitted to us publicly that he still has sensitivities. But this guy has tried every single thing in the book to biohack and, and get well. And he's still dealing with these sensitivities. But he's selling all this stuff <laughs> all the time to people for them to get well. Or, or talking about, you know, children and nutrition and all this stuff. It's like, oh, boy. And they always it's put ridiculous. it in. Oh, but you have to avoid mold. And yet the desire of people to go for that 
easy fix is such that, okay, of course we have to avoid mold. So I'll avoid mold by um, going avoiding the really bad places. And I'll buy a filter. That's a, avoiding mold, right? I'm reducing the mold. Well, if you look at all the stories where it didn't work, no, that's not always that's not always the way to go. And when Dr. Shoemaker wrote about the leptin clue, I thought, well, this is just fantastic because it explains it. Because the idea is that when you've got chronic inflammation, you've got elevated leptin, the enzyme that keeps the fats stored in the cells. You're not releasing anything to be detoxed. So in other words, if you don't lower your inflammatory response, those toxins are never going to be coming out to be bound and excreted. You're just spinning your wheels. And this would explain why the people who went to the desert and got completely clear of all possessions do so incredibly well, while the people that trial the binders without doing this drone on for year after year after year without much recovery because they're not lowering their inflammation sufficiently to get that leptin back to normal so they get the stuff out of their bodies. Furthermore, if you're back in a um, chemically laden toxic house with all of its formaldehyde and glues and varnishes and various other things that are an assault on your immune system, you've got to deal with that as well. So even though it may not necessarily be mold that's keeping you sick, anything that keeps your C4, your um, complement activation factor elevated is going to keep that inflammation rolling and you're not in a position to maximize detoxification no matter what miracle pills you try. Yeah, and we we also talked about this too, that there's some people that will ascribe um, success or failure of a treatment to to the outcome. So if this treatment for mold was unsuccessful, then maybe mold wasn't always my problem and it's something else. Can we, can you talk about how that could cause some issues for that individual? Well, number one, when they consider that they've done perfect mold avoidance because they moved into a new house or they moved into a place that feels okay in Las Vegas, well, maybe they didn't do the perfect job of mold avoidance because they're certainly not achieving the same level of pristine natural environment that you would camping out in the desert. And maybe that wasn't enough for them. Maybe there's enough ambient levels of bad stuff in the air inside town where they didn't hit that magic level to lower their inflammation, get the leptin to a point where they could detox. So that's a confounder. So the other uh, problem with that, of tying your results to whether or not this is validation that that's the problem, is that there's many forms of immune damage that aren't correctable by getting away from it, like radiation damage or sarin nerve agent. Once you're exposed to these things, you can always expect some residual damage. You can't say, well, I did the perfect sarin avoidance and it didn't work, so therefore that wasn't my problem. The hell it wasn't. If you're exposed to radiation, you can expect to be messed up. And I don't see any reason why people would have that expectation for toxic mold. We understand that these things were used for biological warfare agents, and they're so powerful that you can expect some kind of lingering immune damage. 
And maybe it got to the point where you're over the line. You went too far. We don't know. But you can't say, I am perfectly free of toxic mold exposure, and that didn't work. So therefore, that proves that that wasn't the problem. In your experience, what has happened to those people? They typically drone on for years and years, never quite recovering. A lot of them do achieve some semblance of almost normalcy, of of recovery, but it's not super impressive. And Dr. David uh, Bell of the David S. Bell of the 1985 Lindenville outbreak did a spectacular study, 25-year follow-up on his Lindenville outbreak, where a lot of the children, they never really knew what it was like to be normal. So if you asked them, they would say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm fine now. I'm normal. But if you assess their activity level, what their function was, how they interact, you know, their um, scores on function tests, they weren't anywhere close to being normal. So there's another sociological problem with how we interpret recovery. And the best way for a hypersensitive person to get a sense of this is to go to a mold symposium and hang out with people who claim that they are 100% recovered. This is very enlightening because they will tell you that they were absolutely cured and their wonderful protocol is what did the trick. And then you sense a contaminated person walked up to them and they turn white and look uncomfortable and their veins stand out and they turn on and run. So not so recovered after all, are we? Something that you had said to me earlier, where you said even the healthiest people can feel a really bad building. Do you have any experience with this? Absolutely. When um, the um, CDC and chronic fatigue syndrome researchers were baffled about the role of the bad buildings and what the nature of this chronic illness was, we told them about the mold. We told them about the sick buildings. And they said, well, it wasn't everybody. So if there's a problem, it's obviously a you problem, your genetics, the virus, you, you, you. And I said, but wait a minute, you know, that original Truckee High School teacher's lounge, that was so bad that everybody that went into that zone could feel it. And you could take the healthiest person with no history of any illness whatsoever, bring them into that location. And they would start to yawn and they would show signs of hyperfusion and fatigue. And I go, it's not really a matter of this being limited to only sick people, in which case that throws part of the burden of this investigation onto the building itself. And whatever is in that location that is so toxic that it can affect healthy people. And to test this, I actually took people, sometimes even members of my own family, into the bad zones, and it knocked them flat. It didn't impair their lives, and they didn't stay sick for days afterward. But clearly, you can't understand the phenomenon just by viewing it as a problem of the hypersensitive or only something that happens to sick people. You have to cross over into going, okay, how much of this is the inherent properties of the toxic environment itself? And how much of it overlaps into immune dysfunction and the problems that somebody would have while they're having a 
viral infection. And then, of course, the pets. You buy a dog or a cat, take them into a sick building, and when the pets have a problem, well, then you can forget about human genetics. <laughs> I swear to you, I was just thinking that, and I was going to bring it up, and I was like, oh, he beat me to it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I it, it confuses me why Shoemaker uh, and um, his organization or whoever is uh, following SIRS they really focus in on that genetic factor um, when it's, I mean, it's poison to anybody. It doesn't matter what your genetic profile is. That never made sense to me. And it causes a lot of problems because of my chapter in Mold Warriors. See, I refused to have that HLA-DR testing done. I told Dr. Shoemaker, that doesn't matter to me. It's, it's toxic. It's not a genetic problem. And I warned him that if he publishes this HLA-DR 25% of the population theory, Everybody's going to jump on the, oh, well, it's my personal genetics and ignore just how bad this toxic mold really is. And I actually asked him not to proceed with that because it was bound to cause so much confusion and I didn't have his testing done. So this led him to conclude that I must not have his dreaded genes. And he wrote in Mold Warriors that mold avoidance might work for somebody like Eric who doesn't have the dreaded genes, but it won't work for anybody else. And it was only later, it turned out, that he realized that I was doing a more advanced form of avoidance than other people were. Then he demanded to have my testing done, and he paid for it. And it turned out that I do have his dreaded genes. Yeah. That goes to show that maybe they're not so important after all. That even if you do have the dreaded genes, if you know what you're doing, you might be able to deal with it in spite of what all these people tell you that don't even try avoidance. If you have the dreaded genes, it won't work. Well, I'm living proof that that's not the case. Yeah. Keely's mentioned to us, too, that she said um, she has the genes, but not her husband, but her husband still gets affected. So it's like, I think that's... um, like, this is what you see on the internet everywhere with uh, people are like, well, I am mold sick or I'm mold sensitive because I have the genes, you know, I have the dreaded genes, but you know, that just doesn't work out. So I don't know how to break out of that. I mean, we talk about that all the time. So we try to warn people, but it's still this, this common piece of like, you know, the lie that gets passed on that <laughs> everyone accepts as truth. Right, the um, rumor I, that just became unstoppable. Yeah, it's like a successful piece of propaganda. That's and I don't think it's gonna stop until so many ex shoemaker doctors, which they have already done, have bailed out of his concepts and said, "You know that HLA-DR thing? It's not holding up." And that's what's making the rumor start to break down a little bit. Yeah. So everyone listening, it's anyone could be sick from this just because you have the gene and you know your husband doesn't like it's still affecting both of you if you're both being exposed um i think this is a great conversation you want to wrap it up is there anything else you want to chat about no we can wrap it up here and uh, leave the good stuff for later (laughs) all right well thanks everyone for joining us it's always a great conversation with the team and uh we'll see you guys next time We want to thank you for listening. Just sending a friendly reminder that what we say is not intended as medical advice, but information to expand your thinking surrounding common situations and issues within the mold community. If you like what we do, 
please support us by making a donation in the link in our show notes. We also provide one-on-one consultations, products to help with symptom management that you can find in our shop, and a private membership group filled with a supportive community of peers working together to heal from toxic mold. As a friendly reminder, Exposing Mold is a 501c3 nonprofit and every donation is tax deductible. Thank you so much for your support and we look forward to providing you with the most honest information out there on mold and mold issues. Please visit ExposingMold.org for more information. 